The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, is years behind its original schedule for modernizing the system it uses to manage billions of dollars in grants. But FEMA's CIO says the agency has made progress recently. It now eyes next spring for consolidating the rest of its grants into a single IT platform. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more. And give us the latest, because grants are a big deal. Lots of money go through those systems, Justin. Absolutely. This is a big IT modernization priority for FEMA. It's been ongoing since 2015, and it's faced some challenges. But within the past year, FEMA has launched the new IT platform, FEMA Grants Outcome, or FEMA Go. That's used for submitting, approving, and managing FEMA grants, so all in one. It's moved over about half of its grant types over to the uh, new FEMA Go platform so far. And FEMA Chief Information Officer Charlie Armstrong says that it will move the rest of those grants over by next spring. Here he is testifying before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee last week. The program is in the process of getting a new vendor on board to start to transition data from the legacy systems into the new systems, and that is projected to start in the fall of this year. So the goal would be to get all the grants up and running by the spring of next year. Data migrated over by midsummer of next year, uh, and decommissioning to happen sometime in 2025 of the the legacy system. And that's FEMA CIO Charlie Armstrong. And Justin, why has this particular topic of grants consolidation system-wise, why is that such a major issue for FEMA? Yeah, it's become kind of one of the poster childs for a legacy IT, not just at FEMA, but at the Department of Homeland Security in general. These grant systems have been around for decades now. FEMA has really struggled to get the new modern system off the board, and it's a mission-critical system or set of systems right now. FEMA, of course, oversees billions of dollars in grants that are needed to prepare for and mitigate the effects of disasters, whether that be wildfires or floods or what have you. Kevin Walsh is director of IT and cybersecurity for GAO. He also testified at that hearing. The general risks to running legacy systems are risks to your security, mission needs, staffing, and cost. In a specific example, FEMA is working on its grants management modernization program to replace a series of legacy systems that currently are experiencing the problems we're describing today. They have manual processes that are a burden for recipients, a burden for the agency, and are slowing down the response to disasters. If that legacy system were to fully go off the rails, a disaster without grants from the government would be very difficult for our citizens. Yeah, so FEMA does show up quickly when there is a disaster. Why are they taking so long to get this system, this program going? They launched it in 2015, the FEMA Grants Modernization Program, and the program declared a cost breach in September 2018 and then a schedule breach in 2019. FEMA officials attributed that to an underestimation of the program's scope and complexity. That's according to GAO. And they missed their initial September 2020 goal for uh, really launching this new system. They're about three and a half years behind schedule now with this new target of next spring. COVID-19 led to further delays, uh, according to FEMA officials. So they had to really pull things together after really initially underestimating how big of a deal this program would be. Now, they have moved some grants over to the new system, as Charlie Armstrong said, this data migration and so on. What types of grants have they moved? So 19 total grants. They started out with the Assistance to Firefighters grants because those are some of the oldest grants uh, systems that that FEMA used. So they've got those over. They've also got the hazard mitigation assistance grants that FEMA gives to communities to mitigate both the effects of disasters as well as prepare for future disasters. 
And so over the next year, they hope to shift approximately 20 more grants over to the platform by 2024. So these are grant channels, so to speak, different programs accompanied by grants that might go to dozens or hundreds of grantees eventually, correct? Exactly. And there's about eight legacy systems, as we mentioned, that handle these approximately 40 different grant channels or types, as you described. Boy, I can imagine the uh, maintenance and operation costs of all those systems. And FEMA is working on some other areas of IT modernizing also? Yeah, they're actually launching a new project soon, uh, depending on some funding, to consolidate nine disparate individual assistance systems into one. So a similar idea to the grants, but this is the assistance that FEMA grants to individual people in the the wake of experiencing a, a disaster emergency. It's going to be called the Individual Recovery Information System, or IRIS, as Charlie Armstrong put it. He said IRIS is projected to reach full operational capability in July 2027, but they're just getting started. Here he is describing some some more of that. That planning is still early on. There's some initial work that's been done to stand up a cloud environment instance uh, as part of our bigger FEMA cloud environment. So that work should be completed in the fall. And currently the program is in the planning slash looking for funding stage. And there is Charlie Armstrong, CIO of FEMA, talking to Congress. Did you get the sense, Justin, they were buying what he was selling? I think so. I think that, you know, across the board, DHS IT leaders are saying the right things are making progress, as we've discussed today on some of these initiatives, taking more of an iterative approach instead of the big bang approach that they talked about. So they're buying it. It'll be interesting to see if they appropriate the dollars next. Because FEMA has pretty good, I guess you call it political capital. I mean, they lost it all in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and they rebuilt again. I mean, this is a cycle FEMA goes through in tw- every 25 years or so. And so Congress is generally hasn't been too critical of them in recent years. Yeah, I think that they don't have major criticisms on Capitol Hill. They don't have major problems with their political leadership right now. The main thing is just getting some of these IT modernization projects across the line. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. 
And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I 
went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it.
Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.